brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Every day, we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Okay, here we go, folks. This is the Secrets of Story podcast with Matt Bird and James Kennedy. So when you called me over, you promised me beer and wine. And as usual in your refrigerator, it's just like pumpkin beer, pretzel beer, like 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 beer made out of sticks and like where do these beers come from? Licorice beer. Licorice we had some beer. licorice beer in there. We had apple beer. We had grapefruit beer. It's absolutely disgusting. Yes. Welcome. Welcome everybody. This is the Secrets of Story podcast. We are going to be coming to you every week. Ha ha ha. No, we're going to be coming to you as often as we can get our act together and we will be talking about story. My name is Matthew Bird. Why should I, I trust you about story? That's an excellent question, James. You should trust me because I wrote a book called The Secrets of Story. <laughs> it's it's a classic appeal to authority. I am an authority. You are appealing to me. Actually, you are not appealing to me. You're very unappealing to me, but you should be appealing to me because I am the authority that one appeals to in an appeal to authority because I wrote a book called The Secrets of Story, Innovative... See, I always forget the title of my book because they don't let you come up with your own title. Writer's Digest Press, who published the book, came up with the title, and I don't have I've never a copy seen of the anybody book. like 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 twist in the wind so badly introducing their own book. Well, and <laughs> the crazy thing is, I would love to look at a copy of my book and tell you the title, but they have not sent me a copy of the book, and they have sent James a copy of the book because he, like a schmuck, paid to order the book, even though he is a blurber of the book. He went ahead and paid his own hard-earned money to buy it, and so they sent him a copy because uh-huh. apparently if you if you pay the money, they'll send you a copy. Yep. If you, on the other hand, are one of those moocher authors who expects to be paid to publish the book, then you do not get a copy. So just, just, I can't read you the title. Just to, just to uh, keep score, so you've kind of botched introducing the book, you've insulted the publisher, and now you've insulted most your potential readers. I insulted you too. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I don't count that. I, that's that's, I, 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 that's default. That's like that's that's baked in. That's a given. That's a wash. So the title of the book, as best I can remember it, without a copy, is "The Secrets of Story: Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers." I believe. Yeah. 
So how, how did how did we meet, Matt? How did we meet? Well, I had my blog. Uh, so my book was based on my blog, Cockeyed Caravan, and I had published some storytelling advice on the blog. My wife had been a fan of your novel, and then she had recommended your novel to me. I read it. I also became a fan of your novel. Meanwhile, you had read my blog, and you had become a fan of my blog. So it was one of those odd friendships that is actually like based on mutual fandom, mutual appreciation. Yes. And I remember the first day we met you was you, me, Betsy, and M.T. Anderson, who's another author who's very well-known and, and well-liked. And I remember, I, the, I, don't, I don't remember you actually saying that you were a fan of the novel at first, because I, I said, uh, we were talking about you doing your, your blog and, like, storytelling advice, and uh, Tobin, M.T. Anderson, was, like, saying, oh, I, I never really held with those advice books and stuff like that. I just kind of proceed, go organically. And I, until then, had never been into them either. I said, oh, same thing here. Like, I've never really read any advice on how to write, structure a story. And then you said, yeah, I could tell. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's true. I could tell, but, uh, but I, I didn't say anything kind about your novel that day. No, it's, it's, oh, it's not true. It's, it's so um, we, we, which the novel, which apparently will remain nameless, but but the um, the, what the, I I plugged my book. It's your job to plug your book. You're a co-host here. You're not just a guest. <laughs> what happened is we had a wonderful uh, meal and we all hung out and it was great. Yes, so all as well. And we got to drop the name Tobin Anderson, who is far more famous than the two of us. And my agent asked Tobin to write an introduction to my book, and Tobin said no. Okay, so, so now you've gone ahead and alienated your National Book Award winning friend, your your publisher, your agent, most of your audience, and your co-host. Yes, it's true. It's all true. <laughs> so why are we here today, James? We're here because... Um, uh, we, we never did get to the title of your book. The title of James's novel, James's wonderful novel, is The Order of Odd Fish, which is a wonderful novel you should all read. And that is James' authority. When we appeal to James's authority, that is the authority we are appealing to. This is a podcast where James will give me some pushback on things I've said on the blog. He's used to uh, piping up in the comments and saying I disagree with that, but now he gets to disagree with me on a microphone. And uh, you guys get to benefit from it. And, you know, hopefully we'll all have some fun here. We'll see. So, Matt, what are we going to talk about today? This week, we're going to talk about a post that I published on the blog a week or two ago that you commented on and said, I disagree. I wrote a post under a type of post I do called Storyteller's Rulebook, and the title was Channel Master Thespian. We all remember Master Thespian, right? This was a character on Sunnet Live who was played by John Lovitz, who was the ultimate ham actor. And now we bring you another page from the diary of the world's greatest actor, Master Thespian. Diary. The old Vic Theatre is begging me to replace Olivier tonight in the role of Hamlet. Apparently, he has lost his voice. Finally, a chance to expose Olivier for the fraud he is. So then, here was the post I wrote. When we read our own work, we always imagine Denzel Washington or Meryl Streep performing the dialogue, the very best actors who can discover all the nuance and deliver the lines with the proper amount of subtle gravitas and dry wit. But you need to remember that your readers may not do you the favor of imagining those actors. Readers, you must always remember, are inclined to distrust you and your work. They'll assume that you're a bad writer until you prove otherwise. This is true especially for readers you don't know, but truth be told, it's often true for readers you do know. And because they're assuming that you're a bad writer, they'll naturally picture a bad actor reading your dialogue. This is especially true if they detect even a hint of pomposity in your drama or shtick in your comedy. 
A switch will flip in their mind, and they'll say, oh, I see, this is that kind of dialogue, and the voice in their head will become as hammy as possible. At that point, you're poisoned. So your goal is to never flip that switch. Your distrustful reader just needs to stumble over one overdramatic line to unleash Master Thespian on the rest of your dialogue. But can you force them to picture a great actor instead? If you give them no hammy lines, they can't picture a hammy actor. Reread all of your dialogue and remove all the potential ham triggers. If you can hear it in Master Thespian's voice, take it out. Be ungenerous with your dialogue. Try to hate it, and then work on it until it's hard to hate, no matter how hard you try. And I just don't agree with that at all. I think when reader, when or a person, when they buy a ticket for a movie, they open up a book, they want to love it. They want to love it, and they are giving you all kinds of goodwill. They've already given you the goodwill by sitting down in the movie theater, by opening the book. Nobody, except maybe a, a, a world-weary movie reviewer or, or critic or, or somebody who has to do this for college, it sits down to a movie in a world-weary way. Everybody is saying, oh, I really hope this is good. And so I think that you should use that positive energy and act as though you belong in the room and feel that the, the, the audience is on your side. And if you keep second-guessing yourself, and it's like going through and like taking, looking at every single line, like you were saying before, to make sure it wasn't hammy, your, your writing is going to become kind of defensive and timid. Like, every good writing takes a risk. And, and kind of pushes something forward and maybe risks being ridiculous. If you look at uh, the great uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movie, Magnolia, there, like, there's some parts of it that are completely insane and off. Like, like when uh, Julianne Moore, when she's like freaking out in a pharmacy or something at one point. Who the oh, look, fuck lady, do you just, think you are? I come in here, you don't know me, you don't know look, who you, I am, what my life have, is, and you have the balls, the decency to ask me a question about my life? Fuck you two! Don't you call me lady! Like, it is, like, just written utterly hysterically, and it could be awful. You have to have trust in the audience, you have to have trust in the actors, and you can't write timidly and defensively. You know, one reason why I think my publisher named my book what they named my book is they put in the word perfecting your fiction. And I, you know, was a little bit not crazy about that in the title because there was always this debate about is my advice actually good for writing or is it only good for rewriting? And, you know, this is, I'll be the first to admit, a piece of advice that is more useful for rewriting than writing. If you're actually trying to write for the first time and you're trying to say, will any of these lines be too hammy? You know, can I force myself to not write any line that is going to be the comedy is too sticky or the drama is too melodramatic and I'm going to control that? That would absolutely be a terrible idea. So I need to perhaps be more clear as to like, whoa, 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 don't do this at first. As a matter of fact, do the opposite of this. Go whole hog, let your emotions run wild, let your character's emotions run wild, and let yourself write cliche. I think that's something that people, first drafts should be just filled with cliches, because the first thought, first thought is not usually your best thought, and first thought is usually your most cliched thought, but you need to get that first thought out. You need to keep going. So you're right in that this is something that could be could hurt you. So, well, one of the reasons I'm thinking about this is because I wrote a play, and James has been nice enough to agree to do a stage reading of that play at his home. And I'm like, oh no, as I'm sending James the text to send out to these actors to read at his house, I'm going, I better go through this right now and cut out any of the bits that are hammy. And then I realized that there's this great irony, which is that in the play, they're performing a play, and there are too many lines in the text 
that are hammy. And so then the actors lose respect for the text as they perform it, and they begin to ham it up. And this is a true story. So I can promise you this does really happen, because in this play, which is a true story, it tells the night the story of a night of theater in which the actors turned on a text. So not only was this something that I was writing about and worrying about because it would be potentially happening to me soon, like this is sort of a very dangerous evening with a bunch of sort of friends goofing off, reading a lot of play, and they could easily start hamming it up quite a bit. But it's even more ironic because they'll be reading a play about actors who start hamming it up once they lose respect for a play. You know, by the time you're in a situation like I'm in, where people are actually going to be performing your play, mm-hmm. then you would agree, would you not, that this is a danger? That when I, when we are at your house three weeks mm-hmm. from now, and these people are... These, you know, friends of yours, unpaid professional actors, friends so. of yours, professional actors, but but not professional this evening. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, they, they, they didn't come for a lark. They, they, they can't. I, I didn't sell to them like we're going to go read the room. Right. But, you know, but nevertheless, people who are not being paid, who are probably drinking, people who are reading a text that is not to the level of text they're used to performing. Uh, because if for no other reason than it's a first draft, let's uh, let's ignore the. Uh, the fact that I wrote it, but the mere fact that it is anybody's first draft of a play and that they will be the very first people ever reading it aloud, then obviously something that is not up to the normal standards that a professional actor would be used to, all the more reason, if they're professionals, to fear that at some point the evening will descend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's surely you could agree that it is worth my time to try to take out any risible lines at this point. I feel that the, 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 the people who are coming, they want to help, and also they're going to be easier on you than if they knew you. Um, because you, they, the, all they know about you is that you're a friend of mine and that they trust me. They're going to want to... The worst thing that's going to happen is if we finish the play and you're like, well, no, it's going to go, oh, it's great. Yeah. So, so the, you, what you want is your worst nightmare to happen. You want them to be critical, don't you? I mean, you, you want them to, to say yes. things about it are wrong. And you have to give yourself the permission to be wrong in this first draft. Like, you, you think that you're going to go in and you're going to knock them dead with the perfect thing the first time. They're all going to, like, put it down. They're like, jeez. It, it's, it's, it's Shakespeare all over again. Well, I'm, not, I'm not worried about their notes after we're done reading it. I'm just worried about the reading itself because it's like a lot of comedies. The first half is comedic oh, and the second half... <laughs> Uh, like a lot of comedies, the first half is comedic, and by the second half, it's pretty serious. There's whole scenes in the second act that uh, don't have any jokes in them. This real-life comedic situation becomes more and more serious as it twists in the wind. I mean, surely you will admit, surely you will concede that there is some <laughs> that, 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 danger... That is very trope. That is what you say. Surely you will admit. Surely you will concede that, you know, there is some... That I should avoid ham triggers. That there is such a thing as a ham trigger. I think that you should let it all loose for this reading because this reading costs you nothing. And you might surprise yourself. Somebody might give a, a, a reading of some line that you thought... What I don't want you, want you to do is you to, to to cut out everything that is even like, you know, 30% probably bad. You, you, you know, and, and therefore you're going to miss something. Like, I think you're still in the process of creation. And so the, the, the only thing, okay, let's say, let's say you have something in there that is risible. What, what's the worst that would happen? They, they go like, to themselves because they're not going to do it to your face. And they'll be like, well, that was kind of a bad line. But, but then the best thing that could happen is you put something in there that you think, oh, I don't know about this. Everybody goes like, this is awesome. And you're like, I never knew. Yes. Like, like George Lucas thinking that, you know, I love you, I know is a terrible line. And then he saw the test screening and then everybody realized it was a great line. So you are willing to concede nothing. 
No, no, oh yeah, I, I think the creative part. I think this is the difference between like I like really love uh, like doing improv and taking improv classes and stuff like that. And 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 I don't and you haven't been through that. And I think there's a, a much more openness to embarrassment and the embrace of failure and and kind of just and I think you have to deliberately make a mistake and kind of go overboard a little bit and snip it back after you find that. But if you try to correct it before these people can even help you, the whole reason that you're gathering these people is so they can help you. If you say, I'm going to make it so it's perfect so nobody can help me. You can, you might make something that's kind of like the smooth goes down smooth, but doesn't stick anywhere because you left out all the sticky, spiky things that might've made it really interesting because you thought, Oh, that's not a safe choice. But see, I, I disagree. I think that, you should never worry about getting something overly perfect because you cannot see most of the flaws in what you're doing. So there's always going to be a tremendous amount of flaws that are revealed to you once you have people reading your work or once once you have people reading your work aloud or once you have people reading your work silently and then reacting to it or not reacting to it. But you should not go like, oh, I don't need to perfect it like because... Oh, I'm not saying that. I think that you should read it over and over again until you're happy with it, I think it's when you bring make up these imaginary people in your mind who are going to laugh at you uh, for it being bad. That's where you go astray. If I think like it's very valuable to read something again and again, and like I think the way the editing works for me is like I read something and then until something kind of like goes up, oh, that didn't feel right, and and it's a purely personal thing, and then I kind of fuss with it and fix it until it feels right. Um, but I, I'm not thinking about like oh geez, I wonder what you know how Freya will read this when the time comes. So you never, you never worry about losing your audience. Oh, clearly, no, no, I, I lost you several times. <laughs> uh, let me let me quote uh, like what you wrote on the manuscript of the last last thing I sent <laughs> oh you. Oh my god! You wrote, um, "This is just impossible to read without tearing your hair out, and I don't have enough hair to spare." <laughs> so this is it's kind of like the, the, you assume that the audience is 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 a. Mean to the author, and I don't think the audience is mean to the author. I think that's what we need to get back to. I think that that's maybe where you might, I can maybe get you to agree with me a little bit. This idea of like the audience is is hostile to your work of art. I just do not. I don't feel it's true with me the way I approach a work of art, and I don't feel it's true of people in general. But you dislike a lot more things than I dislike. I, mean, I know, but I always go in hoping I'm going to like it. Like, right. I, but, even when I watch like, how... things that I don't like, like Iron Man, like, I, 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 like and, and I like that more than I thought I would. But like, I, I when I start, like, there's a million things I could do other than watch Iron Man, um, and I chose to watch Iron Man, hoping I would like it. I, I don't watch movies professionally. I don't. I don't do it because I, I need to do it for some other thing. The only reason I'm going to watch a movie is the same reason everybody else would because they hope they enjoy it. But how? But you give a movie a certain amount of time. Like, let's look at a, a more universally hated movie that we both hated, like John. Carter. Uh-huh. You know, John Carter, how much time did you give it before you turned on it? Well, th- I, 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 I'll tell you this. I paid $12 to go see it. Uh-huh. And so I went in there really hoping to like it. Yeah. And eventually, I didn't like it. But the, the point but that I'm trying to make... how long did that take? Th- it, whether it took 5 minutes, 15 minutes, or 30 minutes, it doesn't matter. I didn't go in with a hostile attitude. I think everybody goes in with a positive attitude, but they turn quickly. There's this false notion that the reader or the viewer or the audience member will meet you halfway, that 
you you get you see this all the time when people write and they're like, oh, I'm going to write this mysterious story, and you're not really sure what's going on at first, and you're not really sure who the hero is or why the hero wants what he wants or what he even wants or what he's even doing, and the audience will just be you know will just be on the hook, and they oh I can't wait to find out what this story is actually about, and I can't wait to find out who this hero is or what you know or anything about the hero at all or what the hero's goal or motivation or stakes are, and this reader who has spent all this money to buy this book or to see this movie or to see this play will just stay on the hook the whole time and, you know, will let me very patiently dole out information or not dole out information. And any information I don't dole out, they're like, oh, I, oh, I so wish that I so wish I knew more. And that's not true, that people will give your work five minutes. They'll give your work a certain amount of time. It depends on the work and it depends on the person. Like, I know that most people would hate upstream color. I think it's a work of genius. Um, but there, there is no hero with a clear goal. Um, it kind of does seem to meander. There's a lot of questions when you're done with it. Um, and it, it depends on, I guess it depends on what kind of movie are you going to see. I think this also goes to the center of like the book and like this, like you, you are, you're narrowly focused. Like you are talking like, if you want to write the next Harry Potter, if you want to write the next Mission Impossible, if you want to write, uh, uh, like something like that, this is what wh- who you're giving advice for. You're not giving advice to David Lynch, right? You're well, not giving advice. To, nobody's going to write Eraserhead based on your advice. I applied my, my checklist uh, to Blue Velvet, and Blue Velvet did great. So, yeah, I would say that if you want to be the next David Lynch, then I would say that you could still get a lot of uh, useful stuff from my book. Blue Velvet didn't score as highly on the checklist as other movies did, and one of the things I try to make clear is that not all stories should get the same sort of score on the checklist, and that's totally fine. And, of course, Blue Velvet is a masterpiece, and nothing should change about it. it you know, it's interesting that it scored as well as it did, and, of course, very welcome that it did not score as highly as, you know, Star Wars did or anything like that, and mm-hmm. shows that each should be their own. But, no, you know, I would reject this notion that I'm just writing about blockbusters or popular movies. But something like uh, Upstream Color would fail. Would, I, like, would I, I do not know. I have never seen Upstream Color. Or, okay, how about, um, um, but you have seen Under the Skin. Under the Skin, yeah. That was a movie we both saw and that I liked quite a bit. You know, I would say that my problems with Under the Skin did not have anything to do with the structure of the story or it wasn't classical enough storytelling or anything like that. My my main problem, my main issues with Under the Skin were directorial. I thought that it was, I just thought the movie was a little cold. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, no, I, I'd like to think that there's certainly, I never, I don't know how I became this guy. Like, you know, I was, <laughs> I was the art, the, uh, the art film guy of all art film guys. Uh, and then somehow became, you know, my whole blog started as an underrated film blog where I would, you know, talk about movies no one had ever heard of and tell them that they should go see them. And then now I talk about Back to the Future <laughs> and, uh, and uh, how everybody should go see that. But uh, well, what does that tell you? So, well, because I've become more and more, I think this happens to everybody. I think, you know, they always talk about with, you know, comic book artists, when they start off, they all want to be Steranko, and then by the time they're done, they all want to be Kirby. That everybody, you know, the the longer you work in a field, the more elemental, you know, your interests become, and the more you're like, okay, I'm going to go back to the classics, I'm going to go back to, not that Back to the Future is, it's a little bit of an exaggeration to call it one of the classics, but it is classical storytelling. But is that always the case? Like, Joyce, James Joyce, like, started out writing short stories that are pretty understandable, moves to Portrait Artist of a Young Man, which is, like, very formally experimental, Ulysses, which many people find unreadable, and Finnegan's Wake, which is just, like, insane. And they, some artists do get crazier and crazier as they get older. Yeah, that does happen. Okay, what, 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 so you, the, just, to, just to get this... When you have the imaginary audience in your head, I don't want to belabor this, but like 
you think of them as looming over your shoulder, like always on the trigger point of hating? I think that people just ask a lot of a story, that people are willing to pay $15 mm-hmm. if they're in New York City, go into a movie theater, and then let the doors... Essentially, you're not locked into a movie theater, but you're essentially locked in. It's a very big deal to leave a movie. And it's people will look at you very weird if you do it. So you're essentially locked into a seat. You're in the dark. You have nothing to look at but what's on the screen. You've paid your money. Your money is non-refundable. So you These have, are all expressions of faith, by the way. You have every reason in the world to like this movie. You, you know, economically, in terms of the use of your time, the use of your money, it would be horrible for you to dislike this movie. If you were going to see John Carter, then you're like, well, I'm, the money is gone. My time is gone. I have nothing to do for the next two hours, but to sit here and enjoy John Carter. If I enjoy John Carter, then this money will be well spent. This time will be well spent. I might as well enjoy it. I have nothing else to do. And yet you cannot enjoy it. And this is something where... You know, I kept trying to find ways to enjoy it as I went along, though. Yeah, Same thing with Pacific exactly. Rim. I was like, wow, that was a pretty good scene. Uh, wow, well, all right, you know, I, I guess that alien looks cool. I, I mean, I, I don't know if somebody... I mean, definitely, I think there's a point at which you you lose the audience and, like, there's everything after that. I was like, well, maybe that part was okay. How healthy is it to think, creatively, to think of the audience that way? How much does that help you? I know that it hurts me when I don't. I know that when I find myself thinking that oh, they're going to love this. They're going to love it if I dangle something in front of them and don't pay it off and don't pay it off. And they're going to, you know, that they're going to climb into the ring and wrestle with this character who is oblique and strange and unexplained. And oh, so that, you have some, some ideas that you need to clean house for. So this is like, yeah. a, a, like, a, like a cleansing notion for you. That's every, everything I've ever written is a cleansing notion for me. It's, these are all things that I did wrong mm-hmm. and that now I'm trying to do right. And... That, yeah, no, I know that when I forget to remind myself that the audience is going to be suspicious of me, is going to be dubious of what I write, and is going to bail at their earliest possible opportunity, then I start writing in a far too arrogant way. I start writing in a way where, I mean, it's a question of what what does it mean to be antagonistic to your audience or assume, basically, I have to assume my audience is going to be antagonistic with me to keep myself from becoming antagonistic with my audience. But doesn't that sometimes lead to, like, sweaty and desperate choices that, like, you know, you're, you're trying to do too much too soon, you're not letting it breathe? I think that this leads to doing a sweaty and desperate podcast uh, <laughs> with uh, with your fellow writers and that's the worst possible, worst possible outcome. Uh, Wait, and now you've just like, you, 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 you found a way. You're like the Donald Trump of like writing advice. You're finding a way to alienate every single possible uh, um, constituency who would be interested in this. I, I, you're very. You should be very glad to have somebody as likable as me along. Yes, I agree. Okay, so before we wrap this up, can we? Is there anything we can agree on here? Yeah, I, I think that we should keep the audience in mind. I think we should like we're writing for the audience. I agree with that. Uh, we're not writing for our, our own uh, like self gratification or self expression. Or if we are, that's a different thing. We're not talking about that. And so we want to keep the audience's enjoyment in mind. We want to make sure that we're not alienating them or anything like that. I think maybe where we disagree is how to view the audience in our own minds. Yeah. Um, but I think we both put have the idea like yeah, let's put the audience first and make sure that like step by step they're enjoying this and they're on board. And if we are alienating them, then we use every trick in the book 
to keep them on board, even if we're, you know, alienating them. Um, right. One, I think that's something that Lynch is a master at. Like, people, when they watch David Lynch's work, they enjoy being alienated. They enjoy watching the work of someone who seems like just doesn't give a shit. And it's like, oh, wow, this is a person who isn't falling over uh, themselves trying to trying to make me feel good. And in fact, you know, doesn't give a shit what I think. And of course, that's not true at all. Like, he's a master storyteller. He is just as much of a master storyteller as whoever, Robert Zemeckis. He is someone who just knows, you know, he's someone who's probably doing 10 times the work that Zemeckis is doing because he knows, like, okay, I'm going to include all these intentionally alienating devices and then I'm going to keep you anyway. I'm going to I'm going to alienate you and then I'm not going to let you get away. I'm going to push you away with one hand and because I know that I've got you tight with the other hand. And yeah, I don't think in. that he, like, like consciously thinks that, though. I think this is just, like, the way he goes. Because whenever you read him, I mean, and maybe he's just putting on a big front whenever he talks. But, like, whenever you read about him and about his method and he describes it, it always seems very organic. And, like, well, I just saw the, the guy with the boom mic in the corner. <laughs> and I decided, okay, well, he's going to be Killer Bob. It, it's very much in the moment, very kind of feeling like improv, feeling like I'm going to take the step-by-step what's happening and make this into something beautiful. And maybe that's something like only a master can do. And maybe like only after, you know, like being burned by making something as awful as Dune, you, you know, you realize, okay, I have to trust what I can do and what I know how to do and not try to, you know, hit all of like these external things that are outside myself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's to a certain extent, it's just a matter of having masterful instincts. I think that Lynch has, the instincts of a master storyteller. But I also think that, as with all storytellers, he lies. They always lie about, like, oh, yeah, you know, it, it just it just flows for me. <laughs> it, was, it, was an, it, was, it was an idea we had on set. It, I don't masterfully manipulate you. Oh, of course I don't. But, so we're not uh, to take him at his word? No, never take anybody at their word. I, I, th- I think David Lynch is different enough from you and me that, like, w- w- like, he's worth listening to and taking seriously. Well, I mean, but just in general, like, whenever anybody talks about their process, they're not going to be totally honest with you about their process. But yes, yeah, so we, we agree on some things, we, we, but we definitely disagree uh, to the extent to which these things are true and to the extent to which these things are useful. What about you, dear audience? How do you feel? Feel free to respond in our comments when we post this on the Secrets of Story blog, or I suppose, I don't know, are we going to post this on iTunes? Is there places to comment? there. I suppose there will be. I know nothing. This is our very first podcast. I have no idea how this is going to be edited or put together, when it's going to be posted, if it'll have music, anything about this process. So that wraps up our (laughs) discussion. Uh, So I think that every week, ha ha ha, every time we actually uh, get off our ass and do one of these podcasts, we're going to begin with a discussion of a blog post, uh, Pro and Con, in which, as you can tell, James will disagree with every goddamn thing I say. (laughs) And then I think we're going to do something called free story ideas. And the idea with free story ideas is both James and I have been writing for a long time. And we both have some ideas that we feel like we've executed well. And some ideas we feel that we've executed poorly. And some ideas that we're like, you know, that's a great idea. But I'm just never going to get around to actually writing that. And I know that both James and I have idea files that are as long as our respective arms. So one thing I thought about doing is having every week one of us give away a story idea. And then James had an even better idea, which is that one of us will give away a story idea and the other one will try to rescue that idea before we give it away and say, wait, 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 let me try to um, give you some notes on this idea and we'll try to we'll try to fix it. We'll try to rescue it. So maybe you shouldn't give it away after all. So I think I will go first. I will pitch you an idea. I think it's actually an idea you've heard before and you've enjoyed, mm-hmm. but I've almost written it a bunch of times. I've never actually written it. I'm ready to give it away, ready to give it away to you, our listening audience, uh, who can then take this idea and write it for your own 
now, of course, there may be more than one of you listening, so then that may be a problem and that more than one of you are going to try to pursue it. But uh, I encourage each of you to be that one. Assume, assume no one else is listening. There is a good chance that you and you alone are the only person listening to this podcast right now, in which case you can have this idea for your own. So now I will pitch it to James, and James will try to rescue it before I hand it out. Okay. So this is, it's always occurred to me as a general science fiction idea, is that there may be, there may be people who are watching us who are not intervening in our lives and who are only going to intervene if we become a problem to them. And then it occurred to me, like, okay, well, you know, one of the things that may make us a problem to other people is if we start going into outer space. And then it occurred to me, okay, who was the first Earthling to leave the Earth, to go into Earth orbit? And, of course, it was like the space dog back in the days of the Soviet cosmonauts. The Soviets at the time thought that this would be this major public relations coup for them. Like, oh, look, we've, you know, sent an animal up into space. And they, of course, being Soviets, did not realize how horrified the world would be. (laughs) It's like, wait, you just took a dog and then you just shot the dog off into space. And then that was it. You have no idea what happened to this dog after you shot it into space. But, you know, we don't know what happened to Laika. But Laika, who is a she... Um, so it occurred to me, like, okay, you've put all these ideas together, and you have Laika the space dog is sent off into space, and all we know is that Laika's space capsule stopped reporting anything shortly after Laika went off into space, and nobody ever saw or heard anything from Laika again. Well, wouldn't it make sense if Laika had gotten into space, and then whoever was watching our planet from afar instantly teleported Laika over to this intergalactic empire and was like, your race has now gone into space for the first time. And that means that we will destroy your planet unless you can prove to us that you have the right to live, that you have the right to, that your race is worthwhile. And of course, they're assuming that Laika built this spaceship herself. So they're like, okay, you built the spaceship. You're the best representative of your race. Now you have to compete in all these games along with other people who have also been the first person on their planet to go into space. And we've got you all now held in this prison and we're going to have to have you go through various sorts of gladiatorial games and uh puzzle challenges in which you prove that you're worthwhile to have your race survive and so like is like okay even though i have been betrayed by the human race even though i have been shot off into space never to be seen again i now have to save the human race uh i now have to save my planet earth and convincingly fool them into thinking that yes I am the dominant race on Earth, that I did indeed build this ship myself, and that, you know, that I have to pretend to be somebody I'm not in order to win them over. Of course, then the twist would be that Laika eventually figures out that rather than trying to impress them that you're very intelligent, that the more intelligent you prove to be, then the more likely it is they're actually going to destroy your planet because they want to keep everybody down. And so then there's this big twist where it's like, okay, I've got to make myself seem very smart and very capable, and I've got to prove to them that I'm we're this wonderful, smart, capable planet, and then we're like, oh no, 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 I've doomed us. Now I've got to lead a revolution on this planet and overthrow the Galactic Empire in order to keep them from destroying the Earth. So the um all the the other creatures that she like is competing against. Yes. I think it would make sense if the only people who don't know that they're intelligent Every planet is going to send the equivalent of a dog into space. That's a problem. That's a problem with the idea. No, like, that's the brilliance of it. They'll all be in the same situation that Laika's in, and that makes it more likely that she can lead them in a revolution. And they're more on her level, and they're not like super intelligent, like six-dimensional beings. They're the equivalent of a dog. And so she can make friends and find peers within this structure. If Harry Potter went to a, a school of nothing but 80-year-old wizards it wouldn't be as appealing as him going to school with a bunch of other kids. Right. 
an inherent problem with the idea is that surely this has happened before. Like, you know, as, you know, as I conceived it, it was a question of like, oh, you know, it would never occur to the people who had transported him there, transported, sorry, her there, transported Leica there that, oh, this might just be a test pilot. This might just be an animal test pilot who did not build the spaceship herself. But of course, this would happen all the time. Most people, as you say, most people would probably occur to them to first send in a dumb animal into space to test their but this is, your, this is just like your thing about Frozen. You said, like, just assume the premise and don't worry about it. So yeah. they just have it just be like, yeah, these are the equivalent of dogs from all these different places. And that's the premise. That's the fun of it. Um, that they're just a bunch of pets that have to fight for their home planets. Yeah. Um, and um, I think also Laika should not go up into space alone. I think there should be some kind of mouse or something that crawls in the capsule <laughs> with her so that she can talk to you. You need, you need a Horatio for this Hamlet. Otherwise, there's too many scenes of her alone. Um, right. No, that did occur to me. And then I thought about having there be someone on the planet who knows, like, by the way, I've been to Earth and I know you're a dog. And so, so I'm like, oh no, somebody is onto my secret. I think and this works as a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Kurt Vonnegut thing. Yes. Like, and I, I think it, the more you try to make sense of it, the more it's going to try to fall apart. You have to get by on pure brio and panache. Yes. The way that Douglas Adams does. The way that Vonnegut does, frankly. You just have to sell it just by being delightful. And yeah. I think that's a great note. Yeah. Vonnegut and Adams would, uh, uh, it's a great compliment. It's <laughs> something that uh, I may not be able to do any great work with, but it's a sort of, uh, it would be a good idea for Vonnegut. It would be a good idea for Adams. And this I think is, it's, like, like you, you have this idea that she goes into space, but there's no reason why this hero, it ha- like this is another one of your rules that like why why this hero why like why not anybody else would would like be the one to transform the situation and be transformed by it and so I think Leica has to have some kind of des- desire or dream or want before she goes into space she maybe she is the one like maybe there are a bunch of dogs and she's one who deliberately rose to the top of her class and trained to be the one who goes into space right for some reason or another she's not just picked out of a kennel and thrown in. So, so it could be the the same thing happening all over again. Where first she competed for the right to be the one who goes into space, competed against all the other cosmonaut dogs for the right to be the one who goes into space, and then finds out that, you know, that she is just being ejected into nothingness. And then when she gets there, she's once again being told to compete against everybody else, making the same mistake all over again. She's mm-hmm. doing engaging in the competition, only to find out that oh, once again, I'm just competing for the right to die, and that now she realizes that this has been her flaw all along. You're right. She already had this flaw, didn't she? She already, uh, this was the the same flaw that got her into this trouble in the first place, is then almost gets her again, and then she realizes at the last minute she's grown, she's changed. Now she realizes that she never should have competed to be the one, the cosmonaut dog who went into space, because she, she should have seen that the Soviets were... Not good people. Listen to the way your voice changed when you said, she's grown, she's changed. That's immediately the point where you started to lose respect for your own idea. Yes. The, the, you, you found a way to slot it into a formula, and then you immediately started mocking it. Yes. I, I think, I think like, that, that is, that, that's what you have to watch for. Like, we, we were all kind of delighted by the idea until it started to, like, hit this formula. By we, you mean you and the one person listening to this podcast. The royal we. The, yeah, like, but, no, but you, 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 like lost confidence in it. Yeah. So can we, can you, you know, should I give, I'm going to now leave this up to you. Should I give this idea away or can, or should I save it? I, I mean, I think ideas are worthless. You know, it's, it's all like how much time and effort you put into them in terms of, you know, like 
that you, your love and your execution of it, right? Like ideas mm-hmm. are a dime a dozen. But I think if, if suddenly, as you were talking right here, right now, got excited about it and reignited it, then yes, write it. But I can't be the one to tell you that. All right. I think it's yours, dear reader. I'm giving this one away. And then next week, or next time we record a podcast, then uh, James will bring in one of his ideas, and I will try to rescue it, try to keep him from giving it away. Uh, You're shooting this idea out into space. I'm shooting it out into space. it's going to compete against a million other ideas. Don't you, have you learned anything, Matt? This poor big-eyed idea with its little tail wagging adorably, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it in a space capsule. I'm going to shoot it off into space, where hopefully one of you, dear reader, one of you, dear podcast listener, will rescue it. Okay, James. Okay, Matt. This has been the first week of our podcast. How do you feel? I feel great. I feel confident. I feel uh, revivified. Um, I'm probably going to have one more of your horrible tasting beers before I leave. That's wonderful. I'm feeling good myself. Let's go ahead and do, do some more of these, shall we? Yes. All right. This has been the Secrets of Story podcast, episode numero uno. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at Chumbacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.